Welcome to another thrilling episode of Digging Up the Past. I am your host, Petros Kutupis, and today we have planned for you a very exciting episode. Here I have with me author and researcher Dr. Peter Feynman, and we will be discussing the biblical exodus. More specifically, we will talk about his research published in his book, The Exodus, an Egyptian Story. Welcome to the show, Dr. Feynman. If you do not mind introducing yourself to the audience, who is Dr. Peter Feynman? Well, first, I'd like to thank you for this opportunity to speak about this book, which is really a lifelong interest of mine. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm very grateful. I uh, have multiple interests, some of which are biblical, some of which are New York State history. And uh, this, is, this is on my biblical side, obviously. I blog about it. Do you want academic background? Yeah, of course. Go for it. Okay. Uh, I have a, a bachelor's in history from the University of Pennsylvania. I have a master's in education from New York University, an education degree from Teachers College at Columbia University, and also an MBA from NYU, which was useful back in the day when I was working a nine-to-five job. Well, obviously, this education uh, prepared you for focusing on this uh, exact topic. Now, I picked up a copy of your book on uh, the Exodus, and I've got to tell you, I really enjoyed reading it. I don't remember where I initially learned about it, and I think I did see it in an issue of Biblical Archaeology Review magazine. I'm pretty sure it was advertised there. Yes, I did advertise in a few of those issues, so I'm glad to see the advertising paid off, at least in one customer. <laughs> well, I I know from personal experience, because of past publications myself, that it isn't cheap, so I'm, I'm glad that it, it, it is working, at least, yes, at least with this customer over here. Now, we all know the story, or we should, most of us know the story about the Exodus. The Israelites came to live in Egypt during a period of famine and hardship. And, you know, at at some point, they were enslaved and forced to do manual labor for the Pharaoh. Generations later, a hero educated in Egyptian ways named Moses stepped forth after being told by God and freed his oppressed brothers and sisters. But it wasn't that simple. Uh, There were 10 plagues that befell the Egyptians, you know, water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the very infamous uh, killing of the firstborn child. And only then did the Pharaoh tell Moses to leave the land, but he immediately changed his mind and decided to pursue them. This is followed by the parting of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds in the Hebrew text, you know, that is Yamsuf, uh, which swallowed the Pharaoh and his army. The Israelites then wandered the wilderness for decades before eventually settling in the Promised Land. Now, the Exodus carries a lot of meaning to both Jews and Christians. Every year, Jews all over the world observe their freedom from Egyptian slavery with a Passover celebration. And every year, I personally sit down with my in-laws to observe the Passover Seder. To Christians, it marks the beginning of the most defining moment of uh, Jesus Christ's life. The story of the Exodus shapes both Jewish and Christian identity, and many themes in the Exodus story are present in 
life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Dr. Feynman, I know that uh, you said that the Exodus was a passion of yours, but why focus on the Exodus and why do you believe it is so important to understand in today's culture? Well, I think I have to blame uh, Charlton Heston for causing me to be interested in the Exodus. I've often wondered where it came from. And you're trying to do some historical research on my own life. And as best I can determine, without having real documentary evidence to support it, it was the Ten Commandments, the movie there. Seeing that made me want to know, how did Moses do what he did? How did it happen? I never wanted to know how did God do what God did. I always wanted to know how did Moses, the individual human being, do what he did. And that also probably comes in part from my father and his own interest in history and different historical figures, larger than life figures, that he passed on to me. So that was really, I should say, the genesis of my interest in the Exodus, if I could put it in those terms. And I just had this interest since... Since I saw that movie, I guess, as a child. I think that movie has probably inspired many folks, sort of like how Indiana Jones uh, inspired many archaeologists today, right? It's Hollywood that tends to inspire many to get into the the fields or focus on the topics they're interested uh, in today. But exactly right, if I could follow up on that, it was the book The Source by James Michener when I got a little older that got me interested in the archaeology, not the Exodus specifically, but just as a general topic. Reading that book about the site based on a Megiddo Armageddon in northern Israel. So it's based on a real site, but it's a storyteller's view using archaeology to tell the history of people in that area for thousands of years. And whenever you talk about archaeology, pre-Indiana Jones, uh, that's a book that people often mention and saying, oh, yeah, that's I read that when I was so-and-so. Uh, that's what got me started. Which, uh, side conversation, though, uh, which reminds me of a recent publication by Eric Klein, Digging Up Armageddon. Have you had the chance to pick that one up? I've downloaded it, but I haven't read that one. I have other books by him, and I've actually lost track. <laughs> Well, he has a lot of good, he good has publications. A lot of books. And as you know, in the ad, he, he endorsed uh, my book as well. In the ad you saw in Bar. Yes, I did. Uh, along so, with Kara, Kara Cooney. Along yeah. with Kara Cooney, the Egyptologist from UCLA, who just had a book come out about pharaohs. Yep, I have that one too. Uh, what was it called? The Good Kings, I think it was called. Good Kings in the Bad Kings. Yeah. And uh, she has a lot of good stuff to say. I wish her book had come out. Just a little earlier, so I could have included some of her quotations in there, particularly what she has to say about Ramses. Yeah, yeah. It, it tends to lean a, a bit political, but it's definitely a good, good read. I, I did enjoy that one, too. Going back to the uh, Digging Up Armageddon by Dr. Eric Klein, I, I appreciated the approach to the material. And, and, and I know you haven't read it yet but he spent a lot of time over here in Chicago at the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago going through the archives of dig information. So he was able to rebuild the picture of the archaeology of the region during the time 
the Institute was digging up Megiddo. So he was able to piece together all the drama that was going on alongside the archaeology itself. He was even in contact with the remaining family members of some of the uh, the, the archaeologists. So anyway, I you digress. Know, so I can continue. He contacted me when he was writing the book because uh, my dissertation was on William Foxwell Albright. Oh, yeah? So when he has questions about Albright, he calls me or emails me. And says, I have a manuscript of 2,000 pages that was written by his assistant, an old manual typewriter. He wants to know, you know, what did Albright do? When did Albright go here? When did he go there? So I go searching through that and give him the information. That's fascinating. That's very interesting. That, that, Nothing to do with the exodus. Though. No, no, but it's, it's still a great story. And I don't mean to divert the conversation. I mean, we're, that's, again, that's, that's amazing information. I, I'm glad to hear that. But you know what? Switching back to the topic of the exodus. You know, here's, here's the thing, though. I cannot begin to count the number of published books, research, uh, documentaries in search of the biblical exodus. You know, it was Akmose driving out the Hyksos at the end of the second intermediate period, or it happened during the Amarna period uh, because Akhenaten was history's first monotheist. Uh, Ramses was the pharaoh of the exodus for whatever reason, or even Merneptah protecting Egypt's borders from the sea peoples or coming across a nomadic peoples in the Levant he referred to as uh, Israel in the now famous uh, Merneptah Stila or, or, or whatever. And regardless of what conclusion each author or researcher comes to, the same problem exists. It isn't the story told in the book of Exodus. Today, archaeology has yet to corroborate many, if, if not most, of the events written by the ancient Hebrews. Although you yourself take a different approach in your research, uh, you instead look to Egyptian sources. Uh, what made you think of doing that? It didn't happen overnight. It's gradually in trying to realize, if you're trying to find out what Moses did, you have to know the world Moses lived in. And that meant understanding Egypt. And that meant understanding the world of Ramses, the world of Seti, and so on. And really not the Bible. And I specifically state in the book, and you can tell from the title, the Exodus, an Egyptian story. It's not the Exodus, a biblical story. It's the Exodus, an Egyptian story. So if you go to this book and are looking to prove that the Bible is true in, in a literal sense, you're going to be disappointed. Because I don't take that approach at all. What I'm doing is saying, let's look at the Egyptian record and see if we can understand it in a way that is consistent with a real human being leading people out. May I read the first sentence of the book? Go for it. Okay, the very first sentence, Moses led people out of Egypt against the will of Ramses II on the seventh hour of New Year's Eve at the end of Ramses' seventh year of ruling. It is an Egyptian story. That's a pretty exact, exact date, exact That's time That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to start out strong and definitive. No wishy-washy, maybe this, maybe that. Uh, some scientists, archaeologists say this, some say that. No, a very definite view of how it happened. And then spend 200 pages explaining <laughs> how that happened. And what? that's what I think I do in this book. Yes. And after reading it myself, I can see that it's sort of build up, right? The, the, the majority of the book, until you get to the end, sort of builds up to that statement. 
you give the reader a huge background in and around that time period up until you get to the point of that date. Just like you said, you got uh, earlier during this conversation, you have to understand the world in which Moses lived in, the Egyptian world. Right. I find many interpretations of the Exodus start with they're trying to prove the Bible trope. Correct. And that's the problem, right? The archaeology I, I, I think is not that's there. a problem, yes. And I deliberately avoided that. So you won't find many biblical references in this book. And some of the story you were narrating at the beginning, I don't even cover in this book. Because I'm only looking at the Egyptian record. So I'm not going into the wilderness and things like that. I'm looking at what do we know from Egypt. So as I say, if you want to prove the Bible true, this is not the book for you. And when people do try to prove the Bible true, they say, well, here's a name that's in the biblical story, and here's a name that's in Egypt, and they're the same or in the same time period. I don't do that at all. It's sort of like when you look at other narratives, epic narratives like the Iliad, for example, everything around the Trojan cycle. When you look at the archaeology along the Anatolian coast, especially during the late Bronze Age, when the Akiawa were causing a bunch of trouble and the Hittites were recording this, you had a lot of separate little stories over an extended period of time, a little over a century. And as the centuries went on, you saw that bards singing about these narratives took these separate stories and just kind of weave them together into a single tale, which is what we have today in the form of the entire Trojan cycle. Who's to say that that same thing didn't happen with the Hebrew version of the Exodus, what we find in the book of Exodus? You just had many little separate things that sort of came together over time, originally in poetic form, the oldest of which may be the, the, the Song of Miriam that starts to talk about or was it the Song of Sea? Maybe they're one and the same, which starts to talk about how the Pharaoh was defeated during the parting of the sea. And this poem was preserved, and eventually this prose was, was written around it to fill in the gaps. It's fascinating to me how some of these stories organically grew over time, over the centuries. And that is probably one of the major reasons why we're not able to find the biblical version. So I get it. I get why you're going from the Egyptian perspective to find something there. So, well, she I mean, and Troy appear in the first chapter. And this time in the late 1800s is when people, when archaeology really began. Exactly. We don't realize that Assyriology, Egyptology, and so on, these are brand new words that just were created in the mid 19th century as a result of this work. There was no graduate school in, in any of these disciplines then. Well, they were making it up as they were going along. Well, making it up, you have to be careful what you mean by that. But the point is that I'm trying to bring up now is when they created the Egyptian uh, Exploration Fund, now the Egyptian Exploration Society, it was right in that time period when Gilgamesh had been discovered. Not that they knew his name was Gilgamesh. When Troy had been discovered, or they didn't know exactly what level was the destruction. And there was a big push that archaeology could prove. And they were very aware of that. We can prove that the Iliad really happened. Or now we can prove that there is some validity to the story of Moses. 
why can't we do that with the exodus as well? So even though when the Egyptian Exploration Fund was founded, it was founded with the intention in part of proving the exodus. But the problem you run into and the problem I try to avoid in the book is, is they're looking for the route of the exodus in Egypt from the capital of Ramses, which they didn't know exactly where it was, to the parting of the waters, which they didn't know exactly where that was. And there was a lot of discussion about, well, where did the Gulf go? How far north did the Gulf extend? Where were the waterways there? So that's really how a lot of this uh, started in, in the 1880s. But I have two, a couple of points on that. If you, even if you know the road, and a lot of Egyptologists or biblical scholars look at that famous interstate highway connecting Egypt to Canaan. Even if you know that exists, what does that really prove? It doesn't prove any more who, who took that road and when they took it any more than if you in Chicago were to drive to me in New York and you stopped on the way. Archaeologists 3,000 years from now might know there's a rest stop there on I-80, but they wouldn't know on this date at this time that you traveled it and what your reason was for going there. So you can't even find real proof in that regard that Ramses traveled with 20,000 troops uh, across that Sinai Peninsula into the land of Canaan and then into into, uh, Syria. You can know a road exists there through part of the way, but you don't know the details of that. But that was the initial belief that if you find the artifact, you find the story. And I rejected that approach. I'm still interested in learning about the artifacts. You know, where was the capital of Ramses? What were the options Moses faced when he led people out based on the view that Moses knew the geography? It wasn't strange to him. It wasn't like he's wandering along and go, oh, my God, look, at the end of the road here, there's a bunch of water that we have to cross. No which actually I think now that you mentioned, I mentioned it, you see in Spartacus in the movie there when they get trapped at the end by the sea. No, he knew the lay of the land. So that's what I was trying to get into. But I didn't want to get into the Song of the Sea too much because once you start bringing in the biblical accounts, then you have to start saying, okay, who wrote it? When did they write it? Why did they write it? And that opens a whole can of worms which could double and triple the length of the book, as well as how long it would take to write it. So by just focusing on the Egyptian archaeological record and not the biblical text, I didn't have to go through all that. And as it was, there's probably more on the cutting floor than actually made it in the book. Because when I was writing the book, it was hard for me to keep track of when am I writing about Egypt? When am I writing about Egyptology, which means how Egyptologists look at Egypt and the Exodus, which is a story of its own? And when am I writing about the Exodus itself? And I had to really eliminate a lot to meet the deadlines and the size limitations of the book set by the publisher. But then even as far as the Song of the Sea goes, you do have some water stories with Ramses that were always intriguing to me. Uh, one in the book, you know, uh, the Leiden hymn, uh, 30, uh, which is a story of, in mythical terms and cosmic terms, of Ramses or Ra triumphing at the waters. So I started to wonder about stories like that and other things from the Battle of Kadesh and say, well, how much of that really happened and how much of that is royal propaganda or spin? And how much of that is he influenced 
by the event of the Exodus and the way he shapes the telling of the story of the Battle of Kadesh. You know, I can't prove that he did it that way, but I think I can come up with enough instances and examples and say, look, you have these different incidents. And if you put them all together, you have a coherent narrative. And I think that's an achievement. You raise a really good point, which, yes, you cover in the book. And, you know, when when you were talking about the Battle of Kadesh with Ramses, and that is it sort of shows you evidence of how history is written by the winners. Right. Even though now we know because of archaeology unearthing the Hittite version of the uh, of the battle that Ramses wasn't really a winner at the Battle of Kadesh. He went back home rewriting his own story and telling the Egyptians, no, 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 no. This is what happened. I came back. I came back a winner. You will view me as a winner. And he told the same story, retold the same story over and over again. You know, it was one of your oldest forms of propaganda. He was the greatest. He was the great king. And it's amazing because we see evidence of the same thing today in, in, in today's politics, you know, everywhere you look. But it... <laughs> It's it's just funny to see this in an ancient form, but it, it also reminds me of the biblical version, right? You know, the Song of the Sea. Yes, we. we I know. I understand you didn't want to get into authorship of it, although uh, based on ancient orthography, I know that Frank Moore Cross and and David Noel Friedman dated it to roughly uh, maybe around the 10th century BCE. But regardless, this is a form of ancient propaganda, regardless of you know, how real or unreal this poem was in terms of capturing historical events, the fact is, winners write history. So to that scribe or to that poet or bard that was singing this, you know, this is a story of our great people. We were winners. We triumphed over the evil oppressor of our peoples and and, and so forth. Well, what Ramses had to deal with was that he had soldiers who were there who knew what had really happened. It wasn't as if he's uh, coming back to an audience in Egypt that had no idea what was going on. Well, that's part of it. But he was coming back with troops that had fought in the battle. And they were aware that they had not triumphed over the Hittites. They were aware that things didn't change. So then you start to say, well, Ramses, why does he have so many versions of it? Why does he tell his story in so many temples? You don't see that with Thutmose III and at Megiddo, the other great battle that Egyptologists like to focus on because he gives so much information about how he fought that. You see him up and down the length of the country bragging about his victory. So that for me, at least, you start to say, why? Why did he need to do that? And we know because he lost. And we knew there were people in Egypt who knew that he lost. And they would tell stories themselves when they got back that he had lost or he hadn't he hadn't achieved his objectives let's put it that way so that made things that's what made me look at the stories a little differently as he's not telling the story in the day book in the chronicles that the scribes of the army would maintain to track what the army did day by day he's telling as you pointed out propaganda so which are the areas which were the incidents that are propaganda And I identify several of them in the book because I'm saying these are all related to the Exodus, that in the backdrop of the Battle of Kadesh is the Exodus, is the story of Moses, is Ramsey's need to prove himself a success. Which brings me to another part of your book that I actually really appreciated. 
it sort of serves as the backbone to what would eventually lead to the Semitic peoples of this Egyptian exodus, and that is the Hyksos. What I appreciate is the fact that you spend a lot of time redefining, or I should say clarifying, our modern view of the Hyksos. Since the beginning of Egyptology, they have been portrayed in a negative light. And clearly, Manetho did not uh, help with this opinion. But one thing is for certain. These foreigners immigrated from the land of Canaan as early as the Middle Kingdom period, and they came peacefully looking for a way of life. And it reminds me of the Amorites in Mesopotamia that eventually gave rise to the old Babylonian kingdom, and especially one of their greatest monarchs, uh, Hammurabi. Also, you have the Kassites that follow them. Uh, you know, and, and the thing is, they migrated into the region without conflict or war, and they transitioned their way of living to earn a living. And this is pretty much what we see here. Uh, you focus on the Hyksos quite a bit and with good reason. Can you share some thoughts on why they were so important to your research? They're initially important to the research because under Manetho, he identifies the Hyksos as being connected with the Exodus. So that's the only reference in the Egyptian record that we have of a connection with the Exodus. But as you pointed out, the view of the Hyksos by the Egyptians is very negative especially by the 18th dynasty, which replaced them. And what I put in the book is that Egyptologists view the Hyksos through the lens of the 18th dynasty, where the Hyksos are these outside foreigners, they're vile. They're, they're probably Amorite also, it seems now, based on the latest research, just like well, by By their names. I mean, they can tell you know, by their names that it has Amorite origins. So they're just saying, so they are comparable to Hammurabi in some ways, but the treatment is so different. I use that sometimes in a slide when I have the uh, lectures I do on this, where I have a picture of Hammurabi and a picture of Sekenen Ra, who is a 17th dynasty pharaoh with five plus holes in his skull, probably due to the, to the Hyksos pharaoh uh, Apophis just to show or use that as an entree into how the two cultures differ. In Mesopotamia, the Amorites became part of the Mesopotamian culture. In Egypt, the Amorites, through these, the Hyksos, always were viewed, not always, almost always were viewed as vile foreigners. And if you saw the uh, parade that they had, can't remember the name of it, to the new museum that they opened in Cairo last summer, uh, Apophis, I mean, Sekenen Ra was first. He was the first pharaoh. You didn't see him with the holes in his head, but he was the first one in the procession to the new museum, that has, the grand museum being built or finished in, in Cairo. So they had this very negative view of them, except the 19th dynasty under Seti has a positive view of them because Seti honors their position. He recognizes their 400-year stay in Egypt. And as you point out, they came during the Middle Kingdom, they came peacefully, and so as the Middle Kingdom collapsed, that created an opportunity or opening for them to become what we now know as the 15th dynasty. But even though they're called the 15th dynasty, and even though they use the titles of the Egyptian king and learned how to write hieroglyphics, Egyptologists still view them as the enemy outsider, as the foreign barbarian 
who had to be defeated by the victorious 18th dynasty so Egypt could be free. And that attitude carries forward for thousands of years because the only information we had about the Hyksos came from, from Manetho, which he shared that view. He used that same negative view about them. And it's only in the 19th century when you begin to discover these different inscriptions and records about it, not even the 19th, even the 20th century, with the excavations of Manfred Vitek in the Hyksos capital of Avaris, that you start to realize, well, no, that's really not the story of the Hyksos. I mentioned earlier the Egyptian Exploration Fund, which began in the 1880s. That had the same negative view of the Hyksos. They were the enemy. They were vile. They were barbarians. They were savages. Well, I don't know if you used the word savages, but anyway, they were very, it's a very negative view, a very hostile view of them. And that's unfortunate because it's not true at all. They were a people who did learn Egyptian ways. Yeah, they assimilated uh, pretty much like the Kassites in the old Babylonian period in, in Mesopotamia. We cannot trace very much of the Kassite culture itself during the Kassite period in southern Mesopotamia because they assimilated and adopted everything Babylonian so well that we, aside from the names, we cannot differentiate anything between the peoples from the, the, the natives of the region. They just, they came in, they adopted everything, continued everything that was Babylonian without break. Now, it's funny that you mentioned the, the difference between the 18th dynasty rule and the 19th dynasty view of the Hyksos, because during the 19th dynasty, yes, they embraced the culture that was there. They embraced their god, Seth. Although Seth is an Egyptian god, it was seen as the equivalent of Baal, which was the Canaanite storm god. And Seth, Seti himself took the name of their of, of the Canaanite lead deity. But at the same time, during the 19th dynasty, we see a lot of textual evidence of Semites rising to these prominent positions, sort of like Moses. He, he, he rose to a very prominent role in the Exodus story itself. But archaeologically, we see the same thing during the 19th dynasty. A lot of these uh, Semitic Canaanite inhabitants that have lived in the region, mm. you know, they're, they're generals leading the military. They're you know, working in the palaces as advisors or viziers or, or what have you. Completely different view from the 18th dynasty and completely different view from the time of, like you said, Manetho. I know Josephus tried to comment and, and, and attack Manetho's interpretation of the Hyksos period. But again, this is not what Manetho is saying is not what we archaeologically find. Well, Seti's capital was the same capital as the Hyksos capital in the north. It yeah. wasn't that Thebes, where the 18th dynasty was located. And there's a lot of speculation about is there even any biological mixture between Seti's family and Hyksos family, as in they're both chariot military officers from the northeast part of the Delta. So they probably knew each other. Seti had a very different attitude towards the Hyksos all along. It's not that he abandoned his Egyptianness, so to speak. It's just that he was willing to expand it to include other peoples and other approaches rather than just limit himself to Thebes. I mean, he, he did go, of course, build a lot in, in Abydos, and paid homage to Osiris, who, of course, was killed by Set. So he, he, it's not as if he was uh, 
totally separate from the traditional Egyptian culture. But I see Seti as a figure, if, if you look at his tomb and as his interest in tracing the lineage of pharaohs all the way back to the beginning and his ceiling diagrams, that he was, he was a great guy. He was somebody who really had an open mind to understanding the universe. And his universe really went down from the uh, practically the fifth cataract, excuse me, up to the fifth cataract of the Nile uh, into Asia as well. So it was a big world. And we need to use, remember that when we think about Moses and the world he grew up in. It's not this one little tiny place in the Delta. It's a vast, larger world that he knew about. And Seti then had honored, as I said earlier, the 400 years that the Hyksos had been in Egypt, and Ramses commemorated that. So they had a positive view of the Hyksos as a people. And Ramses knew also, from a practical point of view, since the Hyksos were military, you want to have them on your side. You don't want to have the military on the other guy's side. You want to have the military on your side. And that was not something that really was true in the 18th dynasty when they were fighting the Hyksos to liberate the land of Egypt from their rule. See, that battle was really, I call it, they're playing king of the mountain. I want to be king of the mountain. <laughs> You're king of the mountain. I, I'm going to throw you off. It's, it's no great theological issue. There isn't even any great economic issue. It's just, I'm the alpha male here. I want to be in charge. You're saying you're in the Delta. I'm going to throw you out, and I'm going to be in charge, and I'm going to be the ruler. So that's the way the 18th dynasty viewed them, and then they portrayed them quite negatively as well. Unfortunately, those were the artifacts that were first discovered <laughs> when Egyptology began, and began translating some of those at the beginning of the 20th century. So you got this view that reinforced what Manetho had been saying, as recorded by Josephus. The excavations of BTAC didn't start till the 1960s, and then picked up certainly the 80s and 90s, till it became much more aware that, no, the Hyksos are part of a long movement of Semitic peoples, as you were pointing out earlier, into Egypt, going back to the Middle Kingdom. They were there. They're there peacefully. They're living next door to Egyptians. They're sharing cultural values with the Egyptians. And then when the Middle Kingdom collapses, they become the rulers. There's no hostility there. There's no uh, genocide. There's no ethnic hatred. There's no religious hatred. Those are all irrelevant ways of looking at it. But we had this 18th dynasty view of, you know, I cleanse the land of these people. And it's reinforced by Manetho, you know, getting rid of the lepers and things like that. And unfortunately, that has characterized the Hyksos negatively, I feel, in most of the Exodus scholarship. Well, there's been a change in recent years, I would say, in Egyptology regarding the the Hyksos, and that there's much more appreciation for who they are and what they contributed. I know you said you saw the ad in Bar, which had um, Karakuni and Eric Klein in it. I had a, a third excerpt from a, a young Egyptologist who's specializing in, in the Hyksos, more, much more aware of it. Unfortunately, her, her promo was too long to fit into an ad, unless maybe I wanted to take out a full page ad, which uh, I did not. But she is representative of a younger generation or, or people today who grow up with the idea that the Hyksos were not the enemy of Egypt. And pointing out that the capital city where Ramses lived, where Moses lived, was by what we would call a very diverse city. It was not a religious city like the Vatican or Thebes. 
It was not simply a political city like Washington, D.C. It was a military city where the army was located and the army had people of multiple races, multiple ethnicities, all working together as the single armed forces of Egypt. So if you're making a movie of this, you have to be careful in your casting. Well, you know, it's funny that you mention that. Aside from the fact that the Hyksos themselves, at least by, by this time frame, uh, viewed themselves as Egyptian. You know, they, they saw themselves as Egyptians, even though their heritage goes way back into, you know, Canaan. They were educated in Egyptian ways, wrote in Egyptian hieroglyphs. They ran things like Egypt did for many generations, many centuries before them. But going back to the whole melting pot idea of cultures in the region, it reminds me of when uh, archaeologists uh, such as uh, 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 BTEC, and I know that uh, Nano Marinatos, Dr. Nano Marinatos was part of this interpretation when they had discovered Minoan frescoes and, and, and reliefs in some of the buildings in, in Everest. And it just shows you the cultural blending. Did Minoans actually live there? Did they set up a colony there, like a trading post? I don't know. But the fact is, they invited many cultures into the region, which is the point that you're touching on right now. So the archaeology proves it. And, and that's, just, that's just amazing if you think about it. Yeah, one of the impacts of the Hyksos was that they exposed the Egyptians to a much larger world than they had been dealing with. Correct. Their world was just the Nile. <laughs> yeah, their world was the Nile and the three peoples they came in contact with, the Libyans to the west who were not Arabs, the Nubians uh, further upstream, and then the Bedouin right to the east. And suddenly now with the Hyksos, you're in touch with Mesopotamia, you're in touch with the Aegean on a much, more, uh, a much larger scale. And I think that changed the view of Egypt. And that, that was a challenge for Egypt because Egypt used to think of itself like maybe still does, as the center of the world. And all the peoples around them were these weak, small people who recognized the power of Pharaoh. And now, all of a sudden, you were part of a larger world that you could never conquer militarily, but you had to deal with in some way, one way or another. And you start to get this idea of, later in the, in the Amarna correspondence that we have, of brothers. We have brother kings. So we the, might think it's the great brother. kings. That's what they refer to themselves as the great kings. But sometimes they write use the term brother in some of the yes, countries. exactly. And, and and we might think, well, that's great. You know, they all think that they're you know one world. We all live together. Not at all. To the Egyptians, that's that's like a poke in the eye. <laughs> we're not your brother. We're we're the center of the world. And part of that is due to the Hyksos bringing that larger world to them. And you see it in trade, in the archaeology, in the artifacts. You see it in, in artifacts that show up in Iraq, modern Iraq, or, or in Aegean and so on. Uh, Minoan, as you point out, that's a change in attitude. And that's part of the legacy that the Hyksos give to the, in effect, they create the 18th dynasty in that regard. They make King Tut possible. Well, I mean, it was their, some of their innovations that ended up being the reason for their downfall, right? They introduced the sickle sword, which evolved into the kopesh. They introduced the composite bow. They introduced many things, which the Egyptians later adopted and used in their campaigns further north. We typically think of the pharaoh of Egypt. The old view, the traditional view of pharaoh smites the enemy 
was Pharaoh with his upraised right hand, uh, smiting the much smaller enemy in a relief. And they still carry that on in the 18th dynasty. You certainly can see that with Thutmose III. But you start to get images of Pharaoh in a chariot, in a ch- defeating the enemy in battle. And that's in part due to the Hyksos who bring the chariot into Egypt and are best known for, not best known, but well known for that change that they made. So they have quite an impact on the Egyptian culture. Which also reminds me of uh, an, another book written by Robert Drews. The title escapes me right now. Yeah. And he focuses on the end of the Bronze Age yeah. and That's how cherry title of it. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's close to being the title of it. I yeah, the, I think it was called the end of the Bronze Age, but it focuses on the on the warfare, chariot warfare specifically, and how the the style of the battlefield, how battles are fought, evolves and changes to the point that brought an end to many of the cultures that were in power at that time, leading to the Dark Age period, and then eventually the Iron Age. But anyway, yes. Well, prior to the Hyksos, you had no standing army in Egypt. They they went out, and they had a raid, then they returned home. But you didn't have people who made their profession, so to speak, nine to five, 365 days a year, more or less, in the army. I'm not saying no one did, but it was small scale. Yeah, unless you were part of the... Uh... The Chardon or the Sheridan, you know, a lot of these mercenaries for hire that came from overseas or from other lands and essentially served full-time military or, or, or personal guard to the pharaoh or something else, right? Well, that gets to the point I was making earlier about the capital city of, of Ramses, Seti, being a military city and being ethnically diverse and mixed. Just like you say with the Shardana, you know, sea peoples, all different kinds of people were there. So it's a very different view of Egypt than you have from the earlier views, where it's just Egyptians and then they're the enemy Nubians and the enemy Libyans and the enemy Asiatic Bedouins. Now you have an Egyptian army that includes all kinds of people. I don't want to reveal too much of your research, your publication, because I want to leave it up to the reader to pick up the book. And, yes, buy and, the book. <laughs> yes, buy the book, go through the book, you know, learn, you know, the background, the setting that all of this has taken place in till you reach the, the conclusion of when uh, you propose the exodus happened on the exact date. But I want to give you a moment to share some extra thoughts, extra words pertaining to your research that would interest the the listener? Well, I want to go back to that opening sentence, because that's really what the book's about. When I say Moses led people out of Egypt against the will of Ramses on the seventh hour, why the seventh hour? What does the seventh hour mean in the Egyptian culture? Well, that's in the book. On New Year's Eve, why New Year's Eve? What does that mean? When is New Year's Eve in the Egyptian culture? Why would it use that day? End of Ramsey's seventh year. Why? Why the end? Of, why that time period? And these are all very specific claims that I'm making. As I say, why that time? Why that day? Why that year? Why against Ramsey's the second? And that's what I answer in the second part of the book. But in order to show that, I have to explain the Egyptian culture in the first part of the book, so you understand the meaning of that. It's like if we said something happened on July fourth. How would someone 3,000 years from now know necessarily what July 4th means to us? 
you need to explain, or perhaps better using a not a biblical sense, the Yom Kippur War. You know, why did why did the Arabs choose that particular day? So you have to understand the context in which the Egyptian context in which the Exodus occurred. And that leads to why did Moses make these decisions? So I'm dealing with this is a story of human agency. To understand the Exodus, you really have to get into the mind of Moses, the individual human being, or the man Moses, as he's referred to at times in the Bible. Say, why did he do this? This is where I started back with Charlton Heston. Why did he do this? Why did he make this decision? And it took me a couple hundred pages to answer that. And that, my friends, means go buy the book. You know, if you're listening in this topic of the Exodus, this is something that interests you. Uh, this is, again, a, a great read, a great way to learn of another perspective or another side of the Exodus told by the Egyptians and not necessarily the traditional view that we have come to know in the Old Testament. So we have come to an end in our conversation, but I wanted to take this opportunity to to thank you for coming on to the show. It has been an absolute pleasure in conversing with you on this on this topic I myself have historically and personally enjoyed. I, I mentioned earlier that my my wife's side of the family is Jewish. So we get together every year. Uh, for the Passover Seder. So we go through the the ritual, tradition, and I can see myself why it's so important, why what it means to, to the modern day Jew. But as a historical researcher and, and independent scholar myself, it's just something that has always fascinated me to be able to prove some of these events, regardless of what side it's coming from, the ancient Hebrew or the Egyptians, but to be able to prove something that we have a story that has been told for generations and generations to be able to see it in some form in the historical record has always been fascinating to me. So again, I, I thank you for coming on to the show and, and sharing your research with our listeners. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate this chance to do so. So any last words for the listener? Buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> Some wise last words. I will say the same thing. Buy the book. It's it's a great read. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack Threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroskatupis.com. Who knows, it may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis, signing off.